afternoon of the 19th of August 1986. A nine-year-old girl is abducted leaving school and is never seen again. Nearly 15 years later, there is an arrest and subsequent conviction. Tonight, I'll tell you about the killing of Samantha Knight. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. After last week's horrific episode, we have yet another. But then again, this is true crime, so <laughs> but some crimes are worse than others. Tonight, I bring you another story of a sicko that preyed upon children over many years. This sicko's name is Michael Anthony Guider, born the 20th of October 1950 in Melbourne. In short, he would be convicted of the manslaughter of Samantha Knight aged just nine years in 2002. However, he is due to be released in June of this year as his sentence is almost complete. So tonight I will be referencing court records and newspaper articles from the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and News.com. So first up, let's get some background on this Michael Anthony Guider. As I said, he was born the 20th of October 1950 in Melbourne. Well, from what I read from his younger days, no wonder he turned out as fucked up as he did. He was in an incestuous relationship with his paranoid schizophrenic mother while in primary school, which is from about 6 to 10 years old or so. The man that he knew as his father, albeit not his biological father, was a drunk, gambled and beat him up. There were two other sons in the relationship and both would end up with criminal records with one of them having a thing for setting fire to churches. The family moved around in various charitable or community service houses until his father took off one day and never came back. At the age of 11, he was abandoned by his mother, placed in a boy's home and suffered sexual abuse by the other boys. At this time, a visitor that took him on an excursion slipped him some pills and sexually abused him. Guido was once asked by an adult to perform sex acts or an act of indecency for money. Distressing as it was, Guido also participated in the sexual abuse of other boys in the home. His academic results suffered once placed in the boys' home and after leaving, he gained work as a copy boy a clerical assistant, a storeman and packer, a labourer, a cleaner and as a gardener. Even though he had issues at school, he was considered to be quite intelligent. Guider involved himself in a range of activities and interests, including the study of Aboriginal sites and culture, writing, reading, acting as an honorary ranger, horticulture, photography and compulsive collecting articles and books on matters of interest. 
One main relationship he had turned awkward when it resulted in him setting fire to the business premises of this partner and her new lover once the relationship had broken up with her. For that offence, his sentence was deferred in 1979 upon condition that he enter into a good behaviour bond for five years. He'd previously been fined for stealing and false pretenses. Guida was an introverted, avoidant loner, unable to commit to any long-term relationship, and he moved between various hostels, boarding houses and the like in and around Sydney. As I said before, he was quite into Aboriginal sites and culture that was to be found in and around Sydney, and even he found himself on TV shows because of his expertise in this area. While moving between these hostels and boarding houses, Guida came into contact with many families and was able to gain their trust. Mainly single mums and often those that had issues such as drug dependencies. It's this trust that he would use to get close to their children. Guida felt comfortable around children and they found him entertaining as well. Now, this little bit is a bit disgusting. Guida, having developed pedophilic tendencies saw the children that he interacted with and would play with as willing participants in his evil doings and that they would not be affected emotionally or physically. Now, that's pretty sick, but it keeps going on. Guider developed an alcohol and drug habit. He was using Normacin, an insomnia treatment, cough medicines, prescription pills, cannabis and LSD. He had cardiac difficulties due to heavy alcohol intake, hepatitis A and hypertension. Hep A. And he got around so many children. Anyway, so his MO was to get close to families, single mums, gain their trust. Once he had that trust, the parents would often let him babysit or take their kids out on excursions. He would tell each of the mothers that she should go out and have a break from the children. He would often bring them gifts, being a photographer and having access to what you would call sleeping pills like Normison, he would drug the kids, photograph their genitals or sexually abuse them, and sometimes it wasn't just the children of the parent, it was some of their friends. He would mix the Normison in with Coca-Cola so they couldn't taste it. As he had used Normison quite often, he was able to work out how much to use on the small children so as not to overdose him. From what I can see, he started his predatory actions around January 1980 up until 1996, but I'm very sure he was active since he was at the boys' school. I don't think he just started preying on kids once he reached 30 years old. His victims ranged from 2 years old to 16 years old, mostly female, but some males. So let's go back to 1983. Samantha, Samantha Knight. She was nearly seven years old at the time and lived with her mother in Bronte. She went to Bronte Primary School and was described as a very happy and playful girl, a bright light. In early February 83, Guida met Samantha Knight and her mother Tess Knight at a picnic birthday party for one of the girls who was already one of his victims. 
1984, Samantha went to visit the same friend that had had the picnic birthday party. That friend's mother had gone out and Guida was there as a trusted friend to babysit. Little did Samantha know what would happen. All girls were offered Coca-Cola and lollies. Guida put Normison in their drinks and as they passed out, he then took photos of them in sexually explicit poses. Now this behaviour would continue on several more occasions into 1985. Not only would he drug the girls, but beforehand he would play a game he called Statues, where he would expose himself and make the girls stand still like a statue. He would then fondle and molest them. Then he would drug them, take photos and have sex with them. Now, just a side note on this. The girl told her mother about this once they'd moved away from the area, but the mother failed to tell police. This is one of the critical parts of the case, the fact that the mother failed to inform police. Why? Who knows? Maybe she was scared her children would be taken away. Maybe she liked having someone there so she could go out and didn't care what he did. I can't really say 100%. Now keep this in your mind as we go on. In 1986, Samantha's friend's family left the area and that's that woman we were just talking about, Tess Knight, who was a 28-year-old art student at the City Art Institute, then moved with Samantha to a unit at Imperial Avenue Bondi. They had a black cat called Midnight. On the afternoon of the 19th of August, 1986, Samantha walked home from Bronte Public School on Hewlett Street at around 4pm. This was about a 15 to 20 minute walk. She was a latchkey kid and on this day her mother was not home as she was working late on an art project. She turned on the TV and made a snack. She then changed out of her school uniform and put on a bright pink tube skirt, a dark blue sloppy joe with a yellow school emblem over the heart that read Bronte One For All. She wore a pair of blue buckled open sandals. At 4.30pm, Samantha walked from her Imperial Avenue unit to the Cassis News Agency on Bondi Road to buy a pencil and some lollies. This is less than a five-minute walk. She left the news agency but returned ten minutes later and asked the news agent if she'd seen her bronze Yale house key. This was usually attached to a small clip around her waist. At 5pm, she was seen speaking to a male. At 6.45pm, the last person to see Samantha was a neighbour, Miss Rena Kilbride, who spoke to her on Bondi Road, near Wellington Street, walking towards home. Samantha never made it back home. When test night got home at around 6pm, the TV was on, the lights were off, and it looked like Samantha had made herself something to eat in the kitchen. Tess then called around to all of Samantha's nearby school friends' houses, but no one had seen her. After reporting Samantha missing to police, there was a huge search for the honey-blonde, green-eyed girl. There was no sign that anyone had broken into the unit, and her father, who had divorced Tess years before, was not under suspicion. Posters were put up all over the area, in fact, all over Sydney, printed in large letters, Find Our Sam. 
You remember that woman that knew Guido molested her kids and didn't tell the cops? Well, she went to comfort Tess, who was frantic at Samantha having gone missing. This woman still failed to tell police. A child model was dressed as Samantha was on the day and she retraced her steps in the hope it would jog someone's memory. A mannequin was also dressed up and placed near Samantha's last known location at Wellington Street. A 100,000 posters were printed and sent out to all corners of the state and country by the State Rail Authority, the Salvation Army, the Catholic Church and it was put up in all RSL clubs. Even though the posters of her were everywhere and her photo was splashed on the front page of all the papers, days turned into weeks and then months without any confirmed sighting or suspects. The chances of finding Samantha alive were now slim. So let's go over some of this. Tess Knight says she was late getting home as she had an art project to do in the city. Now, she normally got home about the same time as Samantha, but Sam had a key just in case. Now, being a latchkey kid back in 1986, that was a a normal thing, even for a nine-year-old. She lived quite close to a school, and the walk was along busy streets. So, Samantha was seen talking to a male at around 5pm. Now, it looks like this male may have been Guider. This probably accounts for the time it took Samantha to leave the news agency when she returned there asking if they'd seen her key and 6.45pm when she was last seen by a neighbour walking home. As she knew Guider, maybe he sat with her for a time and chatted while she waited for her mum to get home. Now, if Tess got home at around or just after 6pm, Sam was probably still talking with that man that we think may have been Guider. Sunset was at 5.28pm, so it was getting dark outside. Tess would have spent a certain amount of time looking for Sam just around the house. Then, of course, she rang around all her friends. This may have taken up to an hour before she went to police. After the neighbour last saw Samantha at 6.45pm, I think Guida has then doubled back and snatched Samantha and taken her to a work shed that he had access to. He had been employed as a gardener and it was possible he knew where there was a shed that he could use and get some privacy. He was living at Kirribilli at the time, but this was quite a distance away on the North Shore. He would have had to go over the Harbour Bridge to get there, so I think he had a place locally that he took Samantha. Here he drugged her and took photos of her as he molested her. She then started to wake up, so Guida drugged her some more. However, once she passed out, she could not be awakened. She either died or Guida panicked and killed her. We'll probably never know. Her body's never been found. Guida then took her body, as he says, to Cooper Park, which is not far from Samantha's house. And according to him, he buried her there, but dug her up at a later time when he saw men working close to the grave. He said he then took her remains and put them in a dumpster near where he worked at Kirribilli Yacht Club. As I said, her remains have never been found. So, she goes missing in August 1986. 
There are no sightings. There's no suspects. There was a $50,000 reward offered by police, but still no useful information. As they say, the trail goes cold. One of the things that comes out of this is a huge change in the way parents look after their kids, especially picking them up and dropping them off at school. Bronte Public School the day after Samantha went missing was packed with parents who normally let the kids walk home from school. Well, they were all down there to pick them up in person. The days of latchkey children was pretty much gone. There were after-school care facilities and these cost a few dollars a day, but there were not that many available. At the time, the government announced that they would spend more money building more facilities for working parents. But still, a certain innocence was lost. Every year on the anniversary of her disappearance, there would be some media coverage, but still no suspects, no sightings and no body. So let's get back to some court records. In early 1996, nearly 10 years after Samantha went missing, two young girls, each seven years of age, complained that Guider had been indecently assaulting them and taking nude photographs of them. He was, at the time, employed as a gardener at the Royal North Shore Hospital. He was able to befriend single mothers that attended the methadone clinic at the hospital. On the 2nd and 6th of February 1996, searches were made of his work shed and of his residence. Some thousands of 35mm slides, photographs and negatives depicting children in indecent poses and in the course of being sexually assaulted were found. Also discovered were a number of pornographic books and articles, children's underwear and cameras, as well as various texts in relation to child abuse, incest and child photography. When interviewed by police on the 6th of February 1996, he admitted the offences concerning the two girls and acknowledged having a problem in his dealings with children, specifically involving an obsession with photographing them and also with collecting underwear. In subsequent interviews on the 20th of February 96 and the 4th of April 96, he identified by name some of the children shown in various photographs and slides but he did not admit, with one exception, to having behaved indecently in relation to them. As a consequence, police operation Jadeite was commenced in order to investigate possible further offences, in the course of which he was also interviewed in April and July 96 concerning the disappearance of Samantha Knight. During the April interview, he acknowledged having met Samantha once or twice at Manly, the claim to have no knowledge in relation to her disappearance. He also acknowledged having kept scrapbooks which included details of missing children such as Samantha and the Beaumont children, which he said he'd thrown away, claiming that he had compiled these books out of his interest in mysteries but for no other reason. During the interviews on the 9th and 10th of July 96, he accepted that he may have photographed Samantha at Manly although not in a sexual way. He insisted that he had nothing to hide. In the course of a discursive and somewhat rambling interview in which his interest 
if not fascination, concerning the disappearance of children was mentioned more than once. He offered some extraordinary suggestions along the lines that the explanation probably lay in kidnapping by aliens or by white slave traders. Well, I guess the white slave trader idea probably has some merit if she was snatched for some pedo ring. Anyway, in the course of the continuation of the interview on the 10th of July, he volunteered that he thought that Cooper Park would be in an area to search for Samantha, saying that he had been there before her disappearance looking for Aboriginal sites. Once again, he specifically denied having anything to do with Samantha's disappearance and he returned to his theory that aliens or white slave traders, or additionally on this occasion, that Satanists may have been involved. When he appeared in the district court on the 12th of September 1996, he pleaded guilty to some 60 counts involving sexual offences in relation to nine young girls and two young boys extending over a period of approximately 15 years between January 1980 and January 1996. In summary, the counts which went before the court involved the following offences. 18 counts of indecent assault. 1 count of aggravated indecent assault. 16 counts of administered stupefying drug, which was the Normison. 15 counts of sexual intercourse without consent comprising acts of penile penetration, penetration with a finger and with objects and oral intercourse. One count of aggravated act of indecency with a child under the age of 16 years. Six counts of indecency with a child under the age of 10 years. Two counts of indecency and one count of common assault. An offence of possession of child pornography was also taken into account. So, it was found that Guider preyed on vulnerable families, betrayed their trust, used dangerous drugs on the victims aged between 2 and 16 years of age over a period of 15 years, all for his own sexual gratification. At the time, he was 45 years old, had no prior convictions for sexual offences, he had a good work background, and of course he had that traumatic childhood. He also pled guilty at an early stage. So, as he was taken into custody on the 28th of December 1996, his sentences would start from that date. For the 16 charges under Section 38 of the Crimes Act, that is, the administration of a stupefying drug with intent thereby to commit an indictable offence, sentences were imposed of 16 years, which would expire on the 27th of February 2012. Minimum term of 10 years was fixed, which would have been due to expire on the 27th of February 2006. In relation to all the other offences, concurrent fixed terms were imposed, comprising sentences of six years for the 15 counts of sexual intercourse without consent, four years for the 18 counts of indecent assault offences, 12 months for the one count of aggravated indecent assault offence, 18 months for the six counts of indecency with a child under the age of 10 years, one count of aggravated act of indecency with a child under the age of 16 years and two counts of indecency offences 
and nine months for the common assault offence. Wow, he only got six years for the 15 counts of sexual intercourse without consent. Well, of course this is all concurrent, so it was only the main 16 charges where he got the 16 years, which many would be uh, due to be released in 2012, but of course that had 10-year non-parole, so he could have got out at 2006. You'd think that would be the end of it, but no. There would be more investigations into this monster. In May 1998, a further investigation was conducted into Guider by crime agencies, which established Strike Force Harrisville. They found that he had another stash of photos, slides, scrapbooks and all the like in a rented storage unit in Girawine. The scrapbooks contain news clippings relating to the disappearance of Samantha Knight. There were photos of two more girls that would be identified along with photos of Samantha taken on the same reels. Now, it was inferred that the third girl was Samantha as she was there at the same time as the other two girls and the other two girls must have had their faces shown whereas maybe Samantha's face was not shown. So it was inferred that the third girl photographed was Samantha. The mother of one of the girls was tracked down and she nor her daughter wanted to talk to police. They subpoenaed her and her daughter to appear before the New South Wales Crime Commission. They were still reluctant to speak. However, the other girl that stayed over at the time, who was in the photos, was willing to talk and confirm she was molested every time Guida was at the house. She told the commission how Guida would play hide-and-seek with the three of them, and when he found each one, he would sexually assault them. These photos were taken between January 1983 and May 1985 when the girls were aged between 5 and 8 years and depicted them in a drug state and as his MO was, photos of their exposed genitals. Guida was interviewed again from prison this time on the 19th of July 1999. He admitted taking the photos for his own sexual gratification but denied any knowledge of Samantha Knight's disappearance. When shown the photo of Samantha with the other girls, Guida maintained his denial of having taken indecent photos of her or having sexually assaulted her, repeating that he had nothing to hide concerning her. Subsequently, he appeared in the district court and pled guilty to eight counts relating to these two girls, in which in summary involved three counts of indecent assault five counts of sexual intercourse with a victim under the age of 16 years, nine other offences involving acts of indecency or incitement of such acts were taken into account. As he didn't admit to giving Normison to these two girls, no charges were laid in relation to that potentially more serious offence. In his reasons for sentence on the 11th of February 2000, Judge O'Reilly appropriately described these offences as appalling. He made reference to Guida's current custodial position, which required that he be held on protection and to his dysfunctional background. Yeah, held on protection to stop the rest of the prison population beating the shit out of him. Anyway, he was found to be a compulsive pedophile and to have committed the offences while in a position of trust. A conclusion was reached that there was little point in increasing the overall additional term, meaning 
he was inside already for being a perverted pedo and that these offences could have been tacked onto his original trial. So taking that into account, he would only serve a few months extra on top of his original sentencing. Anyway, as a consequence, for the five counts of sexual intercourse with a victim under the age of 16 years offences, concurrent fixed terms of imprisonment each of six and a half years were fixed commence from the 11th of February 2000 and to expire on the 10th of August 2006, effectively extending the earliest date on which he could be eligible for parole by only six months. In respect of each of the remaining counts, fixed terms of 12 months were imposed, commencing on 11th of February 2000 and expiring on the 10th of February 2001. So just let me clear that up in case you didn't get it. For those original charges, he got a sentence. While he was inside, they found he'd done more perverted shit, and so they put him in the court again. But instead of saying, starting the sentence from then forward, which might add years to his sentence, they basically brought it back. So he only ended up with about six months more from what he was already in for. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway. Now, in 1996, a prison informer, which we'll call Witness N, informed police that while discussing the sex offences, Guider said to him the police had also spoken to him in relation to Samantha Knight. He then added, Well, I didn't mean to do it. I must have given her too much. He added, I must have put too much Normison in her coke and she wouldn't wake up. He also mentioned having photographs of her stored in a factory somewhere with his Aboriginal stones. This was the rented storage they would look for and find in 1998. Witness N asked him what he'd done with the body, to which Guider replied, if the cops looked in Cooper Park, they might have found her around the salt bushes in that place. In 1998, there was a Dutch guy who'd been done for drug trafficking they called Witness O. Now, his real name is out there as he was on 60 uh, 60 Minutes Doco. So if you want to search for that, you'll actually see him. But we'll go with Witness O. Guider told him that he'd given Samantha a drug in his shed and later having discovered her dead, he buried her body. He also said that at a later time, he had returned to the gravesite where he had dug up the remains and placed them in a dumpster along with garden refuse near his place of work which was then taken to a garbage depot. At the time, he was working at the Royal Yacht Squadron at Kirribilli as a gardener. Police made a search of the Cooper Park area and of other areas where the, where Guider had been working, but they were unable to find any trace of Samantha's body. Guider was eventually arrested and charged with murder on the 22nd of February 2001 and committed for trial on the 29th of April 2002. After his arrest, Guider did not provide any specific information to police or to the court in relation to the details of the offence or provide any firm information concerning the whereabouts of Samantha's body. In particular, he has not said whether his meeting with her was a chance meeting or something which he had planned. Now, as there was no body and only circumstantial evidence, getting a murder charge to stick was going to be difficult. Now, also the fact that he administered a drug that eventually killed her is also not murder if he did not have the intention of killing her. 
Eventually, Guider would plead guilty to manslaughter, and that was accepted. Now, the maximum sentence available for manslaughter is 25 years. Guider would be sentenced for the manslaughter of Samantha Knight and wait for it 17 years, to date from the 7th of June 2002 and to expire on the 6th of June 2019, with a non-parole period of, wait for it, 12 years. So that expired on the 6th of June 2014. Of course, that would have been his earliest date of release. Now, each parole hearing, each one of them he had was either knocked back or he didn't apply. But this is the reason I did the case this week, because his full term expires on the 6th of June this year. Guider is 69 years old and is still physically active. When you look at what he's done, what he did to so many kids, being in a position of trust when he did it, not only that, when he drugged Samantha and she died, he still kept doing the same thing. So where's any remorse in that? You kill a girl doing your perverted acts, you say you have remorse for what happened, yet you continue to go on drugging kids and for photographing them and whacking off to it all. If this had happened during the digital age, he wouldn't have had thousands of photos and slides. He would have had millions and videos as well. He would have been online sharing the shit with other pedos. His urges are buried so deep inside of him that no medication, no restrictions on his movements can guarantee the safety of society and in this case children if he's let to roam the streets. I say no body, no release, fuck off. I'm sure you islanders are appalled at this monster and agree with me. As the time of his release approaches, this is going to be in the news more and more. It will be interesting what the government are going to do about it. I mean, why release him? Why release him? What use is he going to be society at his age? Get a job at McDonald's or Deliveroo? He's only going to be a danger. A danger that can't be monitored 24 hours a day. An evil, disgusting perv that has lost any right to be in society, though he's almost finished his sentence. Look, my thoughts go out to the family that never had the chance to enjoy the life of their child and who were denied the chance to bury her. Maybe they have to tack on another eight years that was available as the maximum sentence at least. Hopefully... He doesn't reach that age. So it is the end of the show anyway, after such a sad story. So for this week's Patreon shoutouts, we've got Jay Fuller and Casey Adolfson. Thank you so much. And thank you also to all the present and past Patreon supporters of the island. T-shirts and stickers went out last week, so let me know when you get them in case I need to track them down. Don't forget, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. Keep it at free. As you know, I don't like them, and neither do you. If you want to support the island financially, for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the levels and rewards. Alternatively, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland, which Steve Benton did this week. Thanks so much to Steve and bon vagalunga, mate. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, fantastic tote bags, 
Again, my favourite are the mugs of rage, all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, listeners, please don't order the black mugs. Don't do it. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers and beer koozies, which you need to contact me directly for. This can be done by emailing me, cambo, at truecrimeisland.com. And that's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else, such as case requests or just to say boom bagalanga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island. If they don't know how to tune in, show them. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bon fagalai.